I'm a huge sports fan. Everybody knows that. So I was watching Super Bowl 54, and it was really hard for me to determine which team to follow because I didn't care about either. <laughs> so I reluctantly went all in for the 49ers. Why, you might ask? I like their colors. But mostly because they came from California. I thought, I'm a California guy. It's a California team. Let's cheer for the team that is the hometown team. Things were going really well up until the fourth quarter. In fact, at the fourth quarter, about 12 minutes into the fourth quarter, or not 12 minutes in, three minutes into the fourth quarter, um, they were up 20 to 10. And then this play happened. I'll commentate. The guy does the ball thing. He throws it, he misses it, 49ers catch it, and he gets tackled. After this interception, he's not running to, he's running to the end zone to pose for the, for the watching crowd. That pose looked a lot like this. All these guys, 15 of them, 15 guys marshaled themselves to the end zone in order to take pictures and do their, their dope post. You know, their, their poses and all that. Which, by the way, if you know anything about football like I do, you know that there's only 11 guys on the field at any one time. Which means that four guys from the sidelines came together to pose in order to make a grand show of their commanding lead in the fourth quarter of Super Bowl 54. When this scene happened, I turned over to my HFG leader, who can tell you that, and can affirm that I said this. I said, pride goes before destruction. Pride goes before destruction. I saw this and I thought, how disgusting. I wish they hadn't done that. Well, what happened after this play? The Kansas City Chiefs scored 21 unanswered points, stealing the Super Bowl from the fingertips of the San Francisco 49ers. It was awesome. <laughs> the 49ers were devastated at what they thought was in the bag. They had it clinched, and yet they lost it. Why? Well, because they overestimated their ability, their strength, and their position. The 49ers should teach us a lesson that we can do the exact same thing, not just in a football game, obviously, but in our own spiritual lives. We can assume that we are so far ahead, so smart, and so well entrenched in what we know to be true that we don't take any precautions to guard ourselves against pride, arrogance, and a haughty attitude. Not haughty, H-O-T-T-Y, like you're cute. H-A-U-G-H-T-Y, haughty, proud, arrogant, boastful. And that's what we're going to look at today in this particular account. It's a sad account because what we have is one of, the, one of the leaders of the early church who, I mean, doesn't just put one foot in his mouth. I think he puts both feet in his mouth, maybe even a few legs if he could fit it. Because he, what he says is, is painful, painful to watch because we know the end of the story. But again, the challenge for us is to read this and not look at Peter and say, what a jerk, what a, you know, what a weakling, but to look at ourselves and say, man, Lord, keep me from making the same foolish mistake. We ourselves are vulnerable, and the danger for all of us is to always, always, always overestimate our strength and ability. You right now are going to overestimate your strength and ability and where you are in life, period. That's going to be one of your hang-ups because you're a human being. But it's especially dangerous when it comes to our spiritual state, our time, our, our relationship with God, our, our ability to know and to discern. And I'm hoping to prove that to you this coming Wednesday. Yeah, I think your small group is going to be different than what they normally are pending a meeting this afternoon. You'll find out about that soon enough. This starts on Thursday night. Mark chapter 14 begins on Thursday night where Jesus is assembled with his apostles. He has the Last Supper with them, celebrates the Passover. 
And then he takes him to the Mount of Olives, where he's intending to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. You've heard about this place before. This is where he prays and he asks God, if there's any way possible for me to uh, not suffer on the cross, please do that. Don't make me do this. I don't want to do this, but I'll, I'll do it if you want me to. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Right before that scene happens, Jesus talks to his disciples in a very sober way, and he, I think, intends to wake them up from their spiritual slumber. And what he says is remarkable. They just got done singing a hymn, which is interesting, isn't it? Jesus and his disciples sing. Have you ever thought about Jesus singing? I don't think I've ever thought much about that. But Jesus was a whole human being. And like any good Jewish boy, he would have went to temple, he would have sang songs. I wonder what he sounded like. Just an interesting little tidbit there. They sung together. They went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to them, You will all, all y'all, are going to fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, if I was one of the disciples, I would have stopped right there and said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait, we're going we're gonna to do what? What are you talking about? How? Why? How is this going to even take place? But Peter, I think, speaking on behalf of all of them in some measure, chimes in. Peter said to him, even though these other chumps around me fall away, I will not. Nathan might, you know, uh, Evan might, and Bianca might, but not me. Not me, Peter says. And then Jesus, I'm sure, graciously and mercifully looks at him, and yet with a little bit of trepidation says, Truly I tell you, Peter, this very night, this evening, before the rooster crows two times, you will deny me three times. If if I, if I were counseling Peter, I'd say, Peter, listen to what he's saying. Don't talk back yet. Just listen. But Peter says... No, no. He, he further entrenches himself and doubles down and says, emphatically, he says, emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Not to be outdone, Bianca and Evan and everyone else around says, yeah, us too. We'll do the same thing. I'm not going to let Peter out, you know, outshine us. We want you to know, Jesus, that we are with you. The one thing I think you should learn from this en- en- encounter there's several things, but one of the things that you should learn from this encounter is, is that one of the things that you are often unaware of is that you are weak because you're in the flesh. Your spirit might be right with Christ. In fact, Jesus even says, Peter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You might be a Christian saying, I, I, I want to follow Christ. I, I, even in my mind, I've conceptually thought about the idea of dying for Christ. If persecution came and someone held a gun to my head and someone came to my school and said, deny Christ or die, in your head, you might have worked it out to say, okay, would I say I'm with Christ or would I not? Hopefully in that moment, you're saying, I'm going to trust God to save me and to make me, to make me think right, to be faithful to him no matter what. But here's the thing I really want to point out. Peter is the leader of the band right now. He's the strongest. He's the most vocal at the very least. But what you should learn is that if you're taking notes from Peter's life, is that you are actually pretty weak. You should remember, point number one, that your flesh is weak. You're not as strong as you think you are. Peter's a good example of that. Years ago when I went to Guatemala on a mission trip, I think it was my first time there. Certainly Abby was there with me. It was my first time there. Yes, thanks for reminding me, Abby. My first time there, I was there with my then high school director at the time, and he and I had a little bet going on about racing. Some of you guys know that it didn't end well for me. Um, I I ruptured my Achilles tendon. Now, if you don't know what that means, I want to show it to you. So I'm already showing it to you. (laughs) Nothing graphic. You'll notice there's two bumps on my leg there. 
You see the bottom, I have arrows pointing to it so you could see it. Those two bumps are the, is my Achilles tendon. So if you feel the back of your ankle right now, that tough piece of tendon right there, that's your Achilles tendon. When I applied so much pressure on it, when I pushed off of it, the, I was so strong and so explosive <laughs> that it stretched my Achilles tendon beyond the point of its durability, and so it recoiled, which is why it's bumping like that. So if I were to try to flex my ankle this and that way, nothing would happen because I didn't have a tendon there to make it move. Bizarre. One of the most unusual feelings I've ever experienced and as I was laying there on the floor, wondering what took place in my life and what led me to such an occasion, I began to think about the frailty of the human body. I mean, you, you could probably tell I'm pretty strong <laughs> and tough, but that little piece of flesh, not even flesh, tendon on my body derailed my whole entire, I mean, really the trip. I had to end my trip early because... And I've since forgiven him of this. Andrew Goodball ruptured my Achilles tendon. But it came to me, it came to remind me that really the body is quite weak. Some of you guys have physical disabilities of one, uh, one form or another. Some of you have even seen some physical disabilities taking place here in the very room where even for some, some young lady, her brain doesn't allow her to stay focused for very long because it begins to seize her up. And I thought, man, how weak is the human body? For being as strong as it is, for being as amazing as it can be, it's still very weak and very fragile and very easy to, to conquer, easy to defeat. An arrow to your heart or a bullet to your head and you're done. Like your whole body is kaput. Sorry to be graphic about that, but you get my point here. I'm trying to make the point that our body is weak. You're spiritually weak as well. Not to say that you're going to be you know, shot in it with a spiritual arrow or anything, although the Bible does talk about that, but you have to remember your flesh is weak. And when I talk about flesh, I'm not just saying like your physical flesh and bone meats. I'm talking about the life that you inhabit. Your, your spirit might be Christian. You might be born again and made new, but your flesh is still sinful and thus it's also fallen. One of the reasons that you are weak Fleshly is because you are fallen. The thing that, in, in, that plagues you is that you're still a sinner. Even after becoming a Christian, you still sin in a variety of ways. One of the most popular verses about this comes from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? When I went to Christmas at the Disney a couple years ago, um, I was hanging out with a student, Kayla Darm. And she, she shared with this game with me. It's really, a, it's not a game. It's more of a riddle. She said, Pastor Ron, I want to play a game with you. And you, your job is to figure out how to play this game. And I said, okay, I'm game. I'm down for that. I am game. She said, thank you. She said, okay, my line is from here to here. How long is your line? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> she said, well, you do something. And I said, oh, my line's from here to here. She said, nope, that's a bad line. I was frustrated. So I said, okay, do it again. She says, okay, my line's from this chair over here to that chair over there. And then I said, okay, so I'm trying to figure out, like, is it colors? Is it length? I'm thinking, okay, where's the sun in the sky? Maybe it has to do with triangulation. <laughs> I, I mean, so really, this began at the early part of the day, and now it's nighttime, and we're standing at Indiana Jones, like, just wait. <laughs> and she's like, okay, Pastor Rod, can you figure it out? You said, no. I, <laughs> So she said, okay, play, pay close attention, Pastor Rod. Listen to what I'm saying. She says, okay, my line's from here to here. 
how long is your line? And I said, I don't know. It's over here to here. And she said, no. <laughs> so as time would have it, she was further along in the line than I was. But there was someone standing next to me who knew the way to do it. And so I told him, either you tell me or you get out of my ministry. <laughs> He's no longer here. Because <laughs> he didn't tell me. So he says, he says, it's really simple. You're going to kick yourself when you find out. He says, it's only the word okay. You put the word okay in front of anything, and it's a good line. So if you say, okay, my line's from here to here, and she'll say, okay, it's a good line. So I said, thank you so much. And so I smugly walk next to her, and you know, I'm shooting the breeze, and then she says, so you want to try this again? I said, okay, let's go for it. So she says, okay, my line's from here to here. How long is your line? I said, okay, my line's from here to here. How long is your line? She said, that's a good line. And I said, I knew it the whole time, Kayla. I knew it the whole time. <laughs> it is totally dumb. It's totally dumb. I'm not, I'm not making, I'm not defending it. Sorry, Ethan, I'm not defending it. My point is, you expect your friends to deceive you, or even your students in this case. But you don't expect your heart to deceive you. And that's the problem for all of us, is that our heart is actually against us. Our heart's a thing that's causing us to go astray. And if that's the case, if your closest innermost person is causing you to be deceived, who can you really trust? Think about that. You might say, well, I'm a Christian, Pastor Rod, and I would say, that's fantastic. But that doesn't change the fact that inside you is still your heart, soul, mind, and even your strength. All of that is tainted with sin. It's kind of like that science experiment where you take a glass of water, a pure water, and you put some, uh, some ink in it. You'll see the ink subtly, or not, uh, slowly disperse across the whole glass of water. Is the ink still there? Well, yes, but not in its concentrated form. It's dispersed across the entire glass of water. And so it is with sin. As Christians, we're constantly growing and becoming more Christ-like, but it doesn't negate the fact that sin is still present in your flesh, in your thoughts, in your mind. We might call this the Noahic effect of the fall. Your, your mental faculties are plagued with sin. Your heart still desires sin. In fact, Psalm 51, David, when he's praying and confessing his sin to God, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was brought forth in sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying from the very earliest stages of my life, when sperm met egg, that is when I became a sinner. You say, well, that's his time of conception. Exactly. That's my point, and that's his point. From the earliest stages of his life, he's a sinner, and that's also true for you and I. Which means, to the deepest part of who we are, we are fallen. We are fallen. Here's the, here's the idea. Within you, within all of us, let's, let's just be clear about this. Within all of us, we possess the seeds of sin for all the worst kinds of sins in the world. You may not be a murderer, but if you have unjust anger in your heart, the Bible says you are a murderer at heart. You may not be running around with a neighbor's wife or your friend. I guess that doesn't make sense for your age, but you may not be running around with your, you know, I guess it's possible. You may not be running around with someone else's wife or husband. But the Bible says if you lust after someone else, you are an adulterer at heart. It's the same sin, but the difference is not of quality, it's of degree. Does that make sense? The same sin is happening in the heart. The difference is not of quality, it's of degree. They went further with the sin, the adulterer or the murderer. You've only gone this far. They've gone this far, you've gone this far. The Bible says because that sin exists in us, we are sinful. In fact, let's talk about total depravity. One of the things that we teach at this church is the concept that the, 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 the human person is totally depraved. You might ask, well, what does that mean? It means that every faculty of your person, 
Again, thought, word, deed, you're all of your senses, your, your soul, you are tainted with sin completely. doesn't mean that you're as sinful as you could possibly be. It means, though, that you are completely sinful, that all parts of you are tainted with sin. We know this experientially, right? You know that you're tainted with sin because you struggle with sin daily, hopefully anyway. You know this biblically. You're told even as a Christian to fight sin. Therefore, we can rightly understand that we are fallen through and through. We're fallen through and through. It affects our total person. Which means, at the very least, you are far more vulnerable than you might realize. You are far more vulnerable than you might realize. The vulnerability is because you're a sinner, you're inclined toward evil. The vulnerability is because your mind is broken, it's not fully complete in Christ. The vulnerability is because you still gravitate toward sinfulness. The vulnerability is also because the world works against you to contort the truth. For instance, here's the ongoing phrase, let your heart be your guide, Jiminy Cricket said, right? But also, so does everyone else. Let your heart be your compass. I thought that was interesting because we're called Compass Bible Church. Let your heart be your compass. You might think, well, okay, we've heard that before, Pastor. You said it before, but I don't know if you know how saturated saturated this concept is in our culture. There's books about it. Follow your heart and then take action. Whatever you feel like doing, if your heart demands you to do that, you should do that. There's even a camp for this. You can join a youth camp, the Follow Your Heart Camp. (laughs) I know this is actually slightly different. It's the... My point is, my point is, the world is going to affirm and confirm what you should do is follow your heart and let your heart be your guide. Even the late, great Robin Williams said that, and you can trust him because he was the genie on Aladdin, right? But the Bible would say you should not trust yourself in that way. You should not follow your heart in that way. In fact, because you're fallen and vulnerable, you need to be aware that your heart will deceive you. shouldn't trust yourself, young person. I know it's hard for me to tell you and it's hard for you to hear, but you shouldn't trust yourself. This week, I came across an anti-testimony of two guys who are very popular who share their testimony about why they left Christianity. As I'm listening to their story, I'm thinking to myself, okay, there's so many times when I would have said, well, wait a minute, I don't trust, me. I don't trust myself to be thinking that through clearly. I better slow down and understand why I would be raging against God in this particular area. He talks about science, evolution, of course, chromosome 2, DNA, vestigial structures, things like that, stuff that you've heard about before. But I thought if, if they would have began from the place of not trusting their own intellectual prowess and saying, wait a minute, maybe I'm not understanding this. Maybe ignorance is not, is not something that should give me more precedent to deny God, but maybe my ignorance should cause me to be more humble before God and to realize, man, there's a lot that I don't know. You see, when you understand yourself rightly and you recognize your vulnerability, you're going to be a lot less likely to run the opposite direction from God because you're constantly going to be saying to yourself, I don't know if I'm understanding this right. I don't know if I'm really fully grasping all that God is saying to me about this particular subject. But when you feel self-assured and self-reliable, you're going to say, well, I've got this. I can do this. And we're going to talk about that in the second point. But you've got to realize you are vulnerable. Your thoughts, your feelings, your actions. I mean, if you could just ask yourself for a moment, when has your feelings last led you astray? Today, probably. (laughs) Some of you like cats, case in point. (laughs) Feelings leading you astray. All this to say, young person, the the, the hymn writer is right. He He wrote the line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. The Christian experience is this. I feel my my gravitational pull toward that which is wrong. It's like Gollum and the ring. (laughs) 
It's like my precious. I want that thing, even if it costs me my life. That is our struggle with sin, and that's what you need to feel. You need to be vulnerable or re- realize that you are vulnerable. Even though all this is true, I want to point you to one phrase that Jesus tells his disciples. He says, but after I am raised up, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. This line is an amazing but. That three-letter word there tells us that Jesus breaks up the narrative and says, though you guys are going to betray me, and though you guys are going to do what you should not do, I am going to show grace to you, I'm going to raise myself from the dead, and I'm going to restore you. While it is true that you are vulnerable and you are fallen, it is also equally true that if you are in Christ, you are fully forgiven, accepted, embraced, loved, One writer said it this way, you are more wicked and fallen than you ever dared to imagine. But at the very same time, you are more accepted and loved than you ever dared believe. The gospel is amazing, and it's things like this that help us to see that. Even while Jesus says, you're going to deny me, he also says, but I'll, I'll meet you in Galilee. I'll see you there. We'll connect there. I'll restore you. That ought to encourage you. And ought to show you that even though God knows who you are perfectly, God still loves you even more perfectly than that. Let's look at Peter's double down. Peter says, you know what? Even though, even though these other chumps are losers, in fact, let's just look at that. Peter said, even though they all fall away, Lord, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three separate times. But he said emphatically, doggedly, determinedly, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. You can take that to the bank, Jesus. And everyone else said the same. The thing I want to point out to you is Peter's brash, everyone knows that Peter's like this, but his bold approach. Peter, do you think Peter's lying at this point in time? I mean, think about this. Is Peter lying? Is he saying anything that he doesn't fully believe in his heart to say, Jesus, no matter what happens, I've been on your side. I've been with you now for three years. I'm going to follow you into the dark and into death, if so be it. Peter's not lying here. He's just radically overestimating his ability, just like we said at the beginning with the 49ers. He's radically overestimating his strength and his self-determination. What you and I ought to do is when we see this, we ought to build spiritual, or we ought to build barriers against spiritual swagger. Because that's Peter's bravado, his boldness, his self-assurance, his, 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 his strength. He's depending upon that to carry him and to be what is enough for him to follow Christ. And what you and I ought to see from his life is that this is woefully wrong for us. Woefully wrong. One of the things that my family and I like doing when we're on vacation is to go to L.A. Um, We like the the museums. We like the food. um, We like walking downtown, things like that. Recently, we went to Beverly Hills to to go see celebrities to see if I can get my big break. Um, <laughs> but I noticed for most of the places that you drive around, has you guys been to, have you guys been to Beverly Hills? You've seen that place before? You notice that when you drive around, there's some houses that you could see, and it's like, oh, that's cool. I wonder who, what they do. I wonder who that is. But some of the really nice houses, the ones that you see like on the internet, <laughs> those houses are blocked by a bunch of walls and greenery so that you can't see inside. I was disappointed by that. Turns out, Taylor Swift lives in Beverly Hills. She, no what, she doesn't? Not anymore? She does, that's what I thought. She, lives in, she also has a house in Newport, not Beach, Newport, Rhode Island. Um, anyway, long story short, she has a house that was owned by Samuel Goldwyn. He's a, I guess, famous Hollywood producer, whatever. Anyway, not important. But at her house, she has, when she bought it, she had seven-foot walls. So if you're just trying to get an approximation, seven-foot walls, it'd be like this to me. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. 
like, okay, like this. <laughs> so the pretty tall, my point, pretty tall. Like you couldn't just walk up and like, see, you'd have to like jump. And if like you're, some of you guys, you'd have to really jump high. <laughs> some of you guys might have to stand on Matt Daniel's shoulders to see it, to see over the walls. But people still found ways over the walls because they really want to see Taylor Swift or in most cases, steal from Taylor Swift. I found out where she lived. It's this house here. <laughs> So surprise, we're going to drive to Beverly Hills and get some selfies of T-Swift. Her house is quite nice. Again, the walls, seven foot tall, but still very, very easy to, 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 to circumvent. Very nice location, you know, pool, jacuzzi, everything. So j j Google Maps, okay? The walls were an issue for her. So she petitioned Beverly, uh, Beverly Hills City and said, hey, let me build better, higher walls so that people can stay out. <laughs> I'm being threatened by them. So now, if you drive up that same Laurel Lane, you'll see that the walls now have this larger extended portion. So now you can't even get on Matt Daniel's shoulders. You'd have to get like a ladder or some other things. Guess what? People still do that, actually. People are still trying to get over the walls, even though that there's signs. In it. And it doesn't look really nice on the outside, does it? And so it looks way nicer. You and I ought to be as vigilant as Taylor Swift is in building walls for outsiders. The outside threat of pride. Like your spiritual walls ought to be as vigorous and as strong and as threatening to outsiders, there's specifically pride, that Taylor Swift is when she's trying to keep intruders outside of her, her walls. Three barriers you should build then. First one is not to compare yourself to others. That's the first mistake Peter makes. He says, though these other chumps fall away, I'm never going to fall away, Lord. I am your man. You can depend upon me. When, when push comes to shove, I'm going to be there for you. I, I know, you know, Caitlin's weak, and so is Daphne, and so are these other chumps, but I'm strong. I can be trusted. And that's mistake number one, and yet that's often really how a lot of us act, right? Most of us are always kind of doing this ongoing comparison process. Where am I in the pecking order? If, if we're looking at a spiritual survey or a spiritual uh, measuring stick of zero to ten, where am I on that measuring stick? The spiritual swaggerly person is someone who's very self-assured. They know, in fact, not only that, but they're overly confident. They know the Bible. And because they know the Bible, they're hypercritical about other people. They look at other people's spiritual lives and say, man, what a shame. If they only knew better, they should be doing this. They, in fact, they have an attitude of, I know this. They come to sermons and they say, I've already heard this before. Ignore the fact that they've not, they're not applying it the way they should. That's a whole different issue. They're self-determined. And in fact, some of these people can be so self-disciplined that their self-determination and their self-discipline can often conflate and become a danger to them and not, a, and not a strength. They're arrogantly knowledgeable. We call this smugness. They're arrogantly knowledgeable. They know, they know Scripture inside and out. They have a sense of arrival of, I am the disciple who's mature, who's made it. This is the kind of person that I, I, want, to, I want to say this kindly, but you might be here. And you might not be aware. Again, Peter didn't know that he was self-deceived. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been self-deceived. For some of us, we may not realize that we carry the same kind of spiritual swagger in our lives. Again, some of the things that we're looking at here, it's saying, okay, do you compare yourself to others and say, well, I'm way better than that guy? You know, Amir, he struggles to read the Bible twice a week. I read it seven times. Seven. And then I prayed a lot longer than Amir did. Amir only prays for five minutes each time he prays, and yet I was praying the whole time, like infinite prayer, infinite prayer. I prayed for 20 minutes this week, and Amir only prayed for five. 
it would be easy, right, if our brains thought that clearly to say it that way. But for, for the most part, we're not saying things in our head like that. We're just internalizing this air of superiority of like, well, I'm doing a better job than, than Dylan is. Must be okay. If I'm, if I'm measuring my spiritual maturity, I'm going to look at other people and say, well, how am I doing compared to that person or that guy? Or maybe the, the super seniors this year, the spiritual guys who are really good, good in their conversation. How am I doing compared to those guys? Yeah, sometimes comparison is helpful. But for the most part, when you're comparing yourself against other people and you're using yourself to prop yourself up and you're using them to step on to get to your next level, you're sinning because you're using them, you're demeaning them, and you're using them to prop your own spiritual pride. Don't compare yourself to others. Unless, there is an unless, unless you're looking up to them and say, how can I be more like Christ? Paul said that to, to people. He said, be imitators of me as I am of God. That's an appropriate comparison. And I guess in some sense, and this is scary for me to say, you should be looking up to me, to your leaders. You should be looking up to people that are ahead of you in life to say, okay, how can I emulate the good qualities that I see in my leader? Justin Cox, Ryan D'Amato, Bianca McSwain. I mean, that, you don't... That's, that's the point. But when you're using other people to prop yourself up and prop up your pride, that's when you're in danger. Second thing you should do, the second barrier you should build for yourself is not, is not to think that you can't sin in big, massive, ugly, destructive ways. Some people are so caught up thinking that they're so entrenched, they're so strong, they're so able to do things, uh, you know, to, 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 to face sin and not be tempted, that they put themselves in situations where they're so much more vulnerable than they otherwise would be. You should never think that you're too big to fail. When I was your age, one of my favorite companies, I tried to actually apply to work for them, and they never accepted me. I'm not mad about that anymore. But one of my favorite companies at that point in time was Blockbuster. Friday night after school, I'd bike over to Blockbuster and see what was there. You know, like, what's available? I want to see a good movie. We didn't have Netflix at that point. I mean, Netflix was still in its infancy. It was around, but it was a, Blockbuster was a place to be. And I still remember it. Going there, the smell of the plastic was there. One time, like way early on, they had at this Blockbuster, they had an ET display, like a, a physical ET. And so you'd go into this side room, and they had a photographer there, and then kids uh, would sit on the bike and you know pose with the ET in there. I did that. <laughs> I actually I texted my mom. I said, "Mom, do you still have that picture? I want to show it at True North." And she can't find it, so I guess it's probably for the best. Probably for the best. <laughs> I show it once, it'll never die. I know you guys. <laughs> no. Blockbuster in 2006 was making $6 billion worldwide. They were on 29 continents. I mean, countries. They're in 29 countries. <laughs> 29 countries. <laughs> You're going to hold it against me. I know it. <laughs> and, they, <laughs> and they employed 60,000 people. So in other words, this was a behemoth of a company. They thought they were too big to fail to the point where Netflix said, hey, buy us. Buy us out, Blockbuster. And you know what Blockbuster said? No, thank you. We don't need you. <laughs> of course, you know the end of the story. Netflix takes prominence, and within four years, Blockbuster is declaring bankruptcy. They said, we give up. We're waving the white flag. We're out of this business. They thought they were too big to fail. Christians can often think they're too big to fail. And the problem is that for most of us, again, we're trusting in ourselves way too much and not trusting what we should. That trust should transfer from, our, from I'm saying, uh, I'm smart enough, I'm strong enough, I'm spiritual enough to saying, God, I need you. Even when I don't feel like I need you, I need you. In fact, Proverbs 25, 28, 26 says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. You trust in yourself, you're cruising for a bruising. 
And, and to even further elaborate on that, you, you, you know this one here, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own measly understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It's going to be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Don't think that you're too big to sin. Or rather, don't think that you can't sin in big ways. Last thing I want to point out to you is what Peter also does. And it's that he vocalizes his strength. These chumps, stronger than them. Jesus, you're telling me that I'm going to fail? No way. I got this. I'm with you to the end, Jesus. Our tongues are a dangerous thing, aren't they? They can say things that we don't want them to say. They can cause us problems. And James has a lot to say about that. But let me just boil it down to this. Don't boast. Don't boast. People that boast think they're better off than they are. It doesn't match reality. And that's why often people get upset about braggarts. But we can do it in the same way. Be a lot more subtle about it. But our tongues can cause us a world of problems. Scripture is clear that we ought to not boast. And, and in fact, to go so far as to say, hey, don't even, don't even talk about going off and making a profit. Like, don't say, oh, man, we, this year we're going to go do that. We're going to have this business venture. And then I'm going to make this profit. I'm going to do that thing or the other thing. And James says, you ought to be so humble that you could say, you know what, if the Lord wills, this is what I'd like to do. Lord willing. For you guys, it may not be making a business and having a profit. It might be, I might go to this school. I'm going to major in this thing. I'm going to have this job. I'm going to move to this country. I'm going to do this, that. Okay, Lord, this is what I would like to do. Lord, would you please give me wisdom to make wise decisions for my future? I'd like to go to this college. I'd like to major in that thing. Whatever you would please, Lord. But the point is, don't boast. Don't make yourself grand in comparison to who God is. In fact, uh, really, this is going to come to a point soon. But all this is saying, you're vulnerable, you're fallen, you're not as strong as you think you are, you should build barriers against spiritual swaggers, um, swagger. And the way to, to approach this is to look at the life of Peter and say, okay, let me learn from what Peter did. So with me, if you'll turn, I'm going to skip this. Don't go to that. Go to this. Mark chapter 14, verses 66, not through 27. That's not how that works. 72. I got dyslexic there. 66 through 27. I mean, 72. 72. The very next section that we're not going to look at, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And what does he tell his disciples? He says, guys, pray with me, okay? Just please pray with me. I need you guys to pray with me. Pop quiz, what do the disciples do? Fall asleep. What does that suggest then about where their confidence is? To the extent that you don't pray is the extent that you think you can do it without God. And that's exactly what happens. We can be assured that Peter thought he was strong enough because when the time came for him to pray, he instead went to bed. He nodded off. And that's where Jesus says to Peter, the spirit is willing. I know your spirit desires this, but your flesh is weak. You need to control your flesh. It's not your friend. It's your enemy. It needs to be put into submission. Until Jesus gives you a new body with new eyes and a new brain and a new glorified, uh, glorified creation, you're going to be struggling against the flesh all of your life. Peter and the apostles show themselves to be trusting not in God, otherwise they would have been praying, but in themselves. 
And now, the moment, the crescendo, where now Jesus has been arrested, he's been ushered to the chief priest's house, palace, and now we get to see the fireworks. Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servants of the high priest, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. The palace would have looked something like this. Not exactly sure what it looked like, but it could have been something of this nature. It would have been grand, large enough to host a good number of people. Again, remember, this is nighttime. The Sanhedrin is gathering along with the official chief priest and the unofficial chief priests. They're there to try Jesus. Now, this is not a real trial. If it was a real trial, it would have been done in the daytime. This is a kangaroo court, throwing accusations at him in order to judge him, try him, take him away. But this is where they're meeting. Verse 67, And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Peter, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. I'm not sure what you're even coming from, girl. You you got me mistaken. I'm not that guy. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Not sure if Peter heard that. Maybe in the back of his mind he heard something go on, some cacophony. Peter in the courtyard. Again, it's dark. People can't see you that well, but they can still tell that Peter's a Galilean. We suspect that the reason why is because of his accent. Very distinct. It's like someone from New York. You know, that was a great accent, I know. Someone from New York, you can hear it in their voice. Or Pastor Hayden, who's from Texas. You can hear the southern draw. It's like, oh, you're from Texas. There's no doubt about that, right? Similar sense, we think when Peter was talking, people heard him say, ah, you look like one and you also talk like one. You're one of those guys, aren't you? Servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you're a Galilean. We can hear you talking. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and a swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. I don't know him. Stop accusing me. They have nothing to do with this guy. And just as emphatically as he declared that he would stand with Jesus, he is now just as emphatically saying, no way, not even knowing him. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not a Galilean. I don't know the guy. I'm just here in the early morning hours hanging out. Verse 72. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The Gospel of Luke says that at the very moment that Peter uttered the words, I do not know him, in that very instance, Jesus made direct eye contact with him. He's saying, I don't know him, and Jesus pierces him with his eyes. Can you imagine that scene? Imagine that. You're denying Christ, and there you see the eyes of Christ as he's now being beaten by the palace guards. He's beginning to be mocked. Some of you guys know what happens to Peter after this. He, he runs away, cries. Jesus gets crucified, and he goes back to fishing. He says, forget it. I'm done with this. this I thought he was Messiah. He's not clearly. I, I ruined this. I ruined my opportunity. It's done. It's over. And my last point for you, really, is instead of letting your failure become a burden that draws you from Christ, is to say, I'm my failure. I am determined to let my failure draw me to Christ. Point number three, let your failure draw you to Christ. 
I was in high school, I, I was part of someone else's senior project. I told you about this before, but I want to highlight a specific, specific aspect. I was part of a Satanist senior project. He wanted to have me and a few others talk about our religions. So I, of course, was the Christian. And there was going to be a Satanist there. There was going to be a Jewish guy there, and I think a Muslim. I told you this before. But none of them showed up, and it was only me. It was only me. And so the Satanist went on to ask me question after question about my Christian convictions. I guess some of it I did okay. But there were several questions that he asked me that I had no idea what the answer was. And here I am, you know, uh, I think your age, your age, and I'm trying to defend the Christian faith and say why it makes sense. And he's asking questions about all these things that I really had little to no answer for. My Christian platitudes didn't work. I was humiliated. There was a group probably about your size in the, in the library as I'm sitting in the seat, and he's asking me questions about my faith. And then when he was done, he says, does anyone, have, anyone else have questions for Rod? And so people raise their hands and are asking these deep and profound questions about Christianity that I never thought twice about. Like, oh, this is obvious. I mean, God created things, and there's the Bible and Jesus and resurrection. What, what more is there to understand? But I found that some of these people had really compelling, difficult questions for me to answer, and I failed miserably. When I left that room, I, I half entertained the idea of just moving to Mexico and starting a new life. <laughs> it was bad. I felt so miserable because I had I'd failed Christ not so much by denial, but just by being so incredibly ignorant that I had no way to defend the conviction that I felt I was sure about. When you fail Christ, the temptation is for us to run. In my case, Mexico. Maybe yours is Canada. <laughs> but don't let your failure make you turn inward or away from Christ, let it run you to him. And you do that by accepting full responsibility. In today's day and age, you are encouraged to adopt a victim mentality. It's, my dad made me do it. He's too, for, he's too overbearing. You know, my social economic status is the reason I did this. My skin color, because I'm black or white or Asian, is the reason why I, I did this thing. Um, I'm socially oppressed, therefore I had to steal to make a living. I'm you know, I, whatever else, I, my, my, my school, my school's at fault for this. My friends, my friends made me drink. My friends made me do the things I don't want to do. My medical condition, I take medication. My medication has a funky effect on my mind, so I, I sinned in this way because my medication made me do this. And, and that's the, the problem with that, of course, as you see that, is when you do that, you're shunning all ability for you to be reconciled to God because you're not taking responsibility for, the, for your problem. As I told you before, this whole thing, you're a sinner and you need to realize that because you need to embrace the fact that you are woefully sinful, far more sinful than you realize and you can't take others and make them be your scapegoats. Jesus is your scapegoat and he doesn't allow you to make excuses for your sin. Accept full responsibility while at the same time bringing, it, bringing your sin to Christ. Hebrews chapter 4 says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses says that he was one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You ever think about the fact that it's easier for us to sin, to, re, to, to give ourselves over to temptation, than it is to withstand the temptation. When you look at Jesus, you might say, well, see, he took the easy way out. He never gave in to the sin, and that, he doesn't know how hard it is. And really, it's the opposite. Because Jesus never gave in to temptation, he knows the full weight of temptation and knows what it feels like to say no to it. When you and I are tempted and we give in to that, it feels good, doesn't it? At least for the moment. We give in to our sin, we say the bad word, we give in to the inclination of our hearts, and it feels good for that moment. There's release. 
Jesus never experienced release. He only ever knew saying no to sin. That's the kind of Christ that you can come to. When you come to him, confess your sin fully. It may not be comprehensive in the way that you would hope or want, but when you're ready to confess your sin, 1 John 1, 9 says that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can come to Christ and know that even though he knows the depths of your heart, he also knows, he also knows the sacrifice for your sin on the cross was sufficient. Let your failure draw you near toward Christ. One of my friends has this pithy saying that I love and I'm going to steal from him. He says, Some days it is abundantly clear how much I need Jesus. On the other days, I'm delusional. There's wisdom in that. Did you catch it? Some days I know. Some days it is abundantly clear how much I need Jesus. On the other days when I don't think I need Jesus, you're delusional. There's wisdom and there's truth in that. I really hope for you to adopt the the song line that says, I need you every hour. I need you, Jesus. My goal for you this coming week, <laughs> I'm going to pull a pastor Mike on this. My goal for you in this coming week is that you will realize your weak position. It's not that I, I, am, I'm a, I object to the fact that you have confidence in Christ or his word. I, I love that. We should have confidence in Christ. But that's the point. We often have confidence not in Christ and his word, but in ourselves, our own intelligence, our own disciplines, our own whatever, fill in the blank. You need to, though, instead of having confidence in yourself, is to have confidence in Christ, trusting his word, following his word, digging deep into that, praying. As I told you, Peter and the apostles showed that they trusted themselves because when it came time to pray, they were like, oh, we're tired. We're going we're to take a nap. Don't miss out on small groups this coming Wednesday. Hoping to make it special and unique and something exceptionally helpful for you. So please be there. Let's pray.